So I have to give you a little bit of preface for what I'm going to share this morning and what I'm wrestling with. And so I'm on the, on the edge of my understanding how to articulate what I'm going to be sharing with you. And it, it might strike you as odd, so you can ask any questions about what I'm trying to understand from Scripture that uh, comes to your heart and mind. But um, you should be in Scripture, like I'm in Scripture, to wrestle with God, to get to know God in His character and His nature and His ways and His purposes and what He wants to do in you, because what He wants to do in you and through you is more important than just you because your life is going to touch other lives. And so um, as we've been reading through this, uh, really, it's a very difficult chapter, too, about these false teachers and their motives and their character and their nature and God's opposing them, God's judgment on them. God is against them, and we're thankful for that. But I've been, this week as I was wrestling again, and I've uh, been doing a little research into some of the, some of the deplorable, horrible uh, ways that human beings treat one another. Because that all has to do with false teaching. Because if, if it was truth, you couldn't treat human beings the way human beings are being treated by some other human beings. So false teaching isn't just about the doctrine of Scripture. It's about relationships. It's about truth in every level. And so as I've been wrestling with this, I've had to do, uh, because I wanted to, did just a little search into some of the things that are going on that uh, it doesn't take much to find some information about it, but you wouldn't normally want to go there unless you were reading some things that, Okay, so I took Second Peter chapter 2, and I just gleaned some things. And so I just want you to hear what I'm responding to in my sermon here as we introduce this subject. He says, their, their condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. If God did not spare the angels when they sinned, God did not spare the ancient world he brought a flood on the ungodly people. He condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. He made them examples of what would happen to the ungodly, burning them to ashes. God knows how to rescue the godly and hold the ungodly for judgment. They are like brute beasts, creatures of instinct, only to be caught and destroyed. Like beasts, they will perish. They will be paid back harm for harm. They seduce the unstable, experts in greed, and a cursed brood. So these are all little snippets out of chapter 2. They left the straight way. They love the wages of wickedness. Blackest darkness is reserved for them. They're appealing to the lustful human desires. They're slaves of depravity. Dogs return to their vomit. Transitioning into chapter 2 a little bit or chapter 3 there, they're scoffers, and they're scoffers that are following their own evil desires, and they're being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. And so we're going to unpack that a little bit, but I want to give you a premise before we start. And the premise is this, 
that it's dawning on me the more I understand the, the sweep of Scripture and the character of God and the nature of God and His relationship with His children that I had several titles for this sermon. One of them was called The Goodness of the Wrath of God, The Comfort of the Wrath of God, The Surety of the Wrath of God, The Sanctifying Force of the Wrath of God, The Dependability of the Wrath of God, the stability of the wrath of God, the consistency of the wrath of God. He is always against sin. And so here's my premise, okay? So I'm putting out a premise, and a premise is something that is some, it's, a, it's an idea to ponder and think about and that you to take home with you and you take to Scripture and you ponder and think about. Here's my premise. Is God's wrath, and then, in God's wrath, we're including his anger, his judgment, his discipline. Um, is God's wrath part of his loving expression of his passion for his people that they would know his glory? So is God's wrath part of his loving expression in communicating his passion for his people to know his glory. And we're going to unpack that a little bit. The word wrath is an idea from scripture, a word communicated, and it's the word orgy. And it, it's an idea of to swell or to build up. It describes a type of anger that proceeds from one's settled nature. It does not refer to uncontrolled anger for which men, human beings, are so prone to, but it's God's settled indignation, indignation and controlled, passionate hostility towards sin in all its various forms. It's, it's that settled decision, which means that because of God's holiness, God cannot and will not coexist with sin in any form whatsoever without dealing with it. So orge is not that momentary, emotional, uncontrolled anger like again that we're so familiar with and prone to. It's God's reasonable approach and consistent opposition to sin. And I want you to grasp how radically different his wrath is from your wrath. His wrath is from your anger. Somebody told me there's a new movie coming out. I'm not advising anybody to watch it. But I'm just saying it's called The Wrath of Man. And they said they just saw a little clip of the advertisement. And they said it looks pretty violent. It looks pretty brutal. So part of my premise and part of what I'm understanding here, you don't want to receive the wrath of man. You want to receive the wrath of God. He's the only being who has the capacity to express his anger and his wrath and his judgment in righteousness, in reasonableness, in holiness, in wisdom, in grace, and yes, indeed, in mercy. 
James says, mercy triumphs over judgment. And so we're taking a big picture look here. God's wrath is not like human anger, which is always tainted by sin. God's wrath, his anger, is always completely righteous. He never, ever, ever loses his temper. If he expresses his wrath, there's reason and there's cause. And there's wisdom and there's love and there's justice and there's holiness and there's righteous governing and guarding that wrath. Scripture portrays God's wrath as his consistent, unchanging attitude against sin. But as Scripture shows, when people run into the wall of God's wrath, if people run into the wall of God's wrath, and they are humble, and they are repentant, God relents. If people run into God's wrath, and they are prideful, arrogant, unrepenting, God strengthens them in their position as being opposed to God. We need to understand hell will be filled with people. They may not want to be there, but they have no interest in repenting. And if you were going to take them out of hell and put them in heaven, they would not want to be there. So these false teachers, these people who are brute beasts, they are purposely moving away and consciously moving away from God. And so when God judges them, and God judges the ungodly, the unbeliever, as you read through chapter 2 of Peter, he, he, he's making distinctions. And it says, God can save the godly, and God can judge the ungodly. So this, this wrath, this word wrath, which includes anger, it speaks of an abiding and settled habit of mind, which is not operative at all times in its expression. Okay? But it exhibits itself when the occasion demands it. When there is no sin, there is no wrath. But there is always love. There is always mercy. There is always holiness. There is always righteousness. So the wrath of God shows that we do not live as many false teachers claim we do in a random and morally neutral universe. And for some reason, that gives me great comfort. So God's expression of his anger towards sin demonstrates that we don't live in a random, morally neutral universe. And you ponder that and think about what the ramifications mean for your relationships and for you in this time of instability and uh, the upheaval of all things that seem to be sound and true. God's wrath shows us that right and wrong are objectively real. They're truths to be discovered and to adjust our lives to. The wrath of God stands totally opposed to the false teachers and the relativity of that day, of the false prophets in the Old Testament, and in our day of our postmodern definitions of truth. 
because it demonstrates to us the moral responsibility and the significance of our individual choices. It shows us that choices have consequences. And you remove consequences from choices that not only belittles the human being, removing responsibility for them for their actions and behavior and their reactions. You make them less of a human being and you prevent them from maturing. So when we understand God's wrath correctly, we'll find it a fearful but comforting truth. A fearful but comforting truth. Fearful because we'd have no power to withstand God's wrath. Comforting because it's not permanent nor irreversible when met with humility and repentance. And we see it over and over again in Scripture. God's anger, wrath, and judgment are presented in Scripture in many places as some, something overseen and something, um, I'm trying to think of the, the words Guarded, governed, they, sometimes when uh, they want the cars not to go too fast, even at, if, you, if you've ever been to one of those little derby places where they have the, rate, the cars that go around the track, they put governors on them, okay? So it, it seems to me as I study Scripture that God's anger and wrath and judgment are presented in Scripture in many places and they're overseen or they're governed by his love and his patience and his purposes to dwell together with his people. So that God has an intention and a purpose to dwell together with his people. God's desire is that people would know him. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but to everyone to come to repentance. Second Peter God knows how to rescue godly people from trials and to hold the ungodly for the day of judgment, 2 Peter. God from the early days of Genesis is seen making distinctions between those who would follow him and those who would not. Paul, in his letter to the Thessalonians, he refers to those people who displease God and are hostile toward the gospel. And they're always heaping up their sins to the limit. And then it says, the wrath of God has come upon them at last. And I'm thinking, oh, so, so God's wrath, God's wrath isn't just a flipping backhand. Think about what that means. His wrath is settled, reasonable response to man's arrogance and man's audacity and man's foolishness to put themselves in God's place and say that we're God, you're not. In Genesis 3, we find God making provision for the sin of Adam and Eve. He told them, and it tells us again in Romans, the wages of sin is death. But immediately God stepped in and covered them and made provision. They were, they were set out of the garden and an angel was put up with a sword guarding the garden. They were not able to return. But immediately 
The very next chapter, in chapter 4, God tells Cain, whose heart is filled with murderous thoughts toward his brother. God stops him and says, why are you so downcast? If you do what is right, will it not go well with you? But sin is crouching at the door. It desires to master you. It desires to have you, but you must master it. And even after Cain kills his brother, God is immediately there speaking with him, dialoguing with him. I'm thinking, what is going on? In Genesis 15, we can find God in a conversation with Abram, making a covenant. And I'm just making reference. You can go back and read about the covenant in Genesis 15. And God's making a covenant with him about his future descendants. We pick up the story in verse 12 where Abraham is just falling asleep into a deep sleep and a dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. They will be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. And afterward, they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, however, your descendants will come back here. For the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. What? What? So the people are going to be in Egyptian bondage for 400 years while God is working on these other nations, 10 other nations that occupy the land for 400 plus years while they had plenty of time to recognize and repent and turn to God. Every moment you and I still breathe is an opportunity to turn to God. Every moment that we're still living is opportunity to behold his glory that much more. Be in a reverent and awe relationship with him. And God's settled wrath is against those who are against him. But in this case, it will take, in that case that they're talking about there in Genesis 15, it will take another 400 years for God's wrath to come to fruition before he drives out the 10 other nations who lived there at the time that these statements were being made. 400 years to avoid his wrath and judgment. 400 years to learn about creator God and his righteous ways. During the first 14 chapters of Exodus, we see God making a distinction between his people and the Egyptians between those who trust him and those who reject him as he delivers them from Egypt. So, on, and on the day he delivered them, carrying out his anger and his wrath against those who rejected him, the Egyptians, Scripture says that many other people, other than the Hebrews, went up with them up out of Egypt. Who were those people? They were any of the people who would put their trust in the God of Israel, who acknowledged even some of um, Pharaoh's servants. They kept trying to tell Pharaoh, listen, this is no longer fun. This is no longer beneficial for our country. And this God seems to have more power than any of our gods. We should respond 
the night of the Passover, the night of the death of the firstborn, was the night of the greatest distinction between those who trusted God, being under the blood placed on the doorposts, and those who did not, and so whom the wrath was carried out and the death of the firstborn. It demonstrated that God keeps his promises. It demonstrated that God can make a distinction back then and now. God is very aware of what's going on, and he can make a distinction. That God can protect those who trust him. That God carries out his wrath on those who don't trust him. And that God's wrath to those who do, do oppose him is measured Ordered, clear, just, reasonable, and thorough. If there are things in this world that are random, you can be certain that God's truth and God's wrath are not among them. In Exodus 32, when Moses was receiving the commands of the Lord, and you could flip there. Let's go to Exodus 32. These are stories we learned in Sunday school, and we should have learned in Sunday school, and we should be familiar with them, but maybe we didn't see them in this kind of light. So in Exodus 32, when Moses was up on the mountain receiving the commands of the Lord, the people who had no trust to wait on God, they said, what's, what's happened to this guy, Moses? We've got to take care of ourselves. We've got our own plan. The people saw that Moses was so long in coming down. They gathered together and they made a plan. <coughs> you know what they did? They do what every human heart does when God doesn't give us our way quick enough. We look for idols. We look for our own way out of a situation that's uncomfortable. And it says, I'm going to read from verse 7. Well, just so that as long as you know, they threw their jewelry into the fire and they fashioned a calf and they worshiped it. Okay, so in verse 7, then the Lord said to Moses, go down because your people whom you brought out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I had to read this about four times because I thought it said that there was one calf and it says, these are your gods. And it says, these are your gods several times. And I'm still trying to figure that out because there's only one calf. But it's almost like, is he saying that every one of us who turn toward idols will fashion our gods after our own desires? These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. Verse 9, I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. And that it will make you into a great nation. And I'm thinking, listen, 
God's having this conversation with Moses. How long has he already known about what's going on down there? So his wrath and his anger, it's swelling up. It's building up. It's measured. It's governed. It's reasonable. It's governed by holiness, righteousness, and justice. Otherwise, it would have already broke out. He would even had to have a discussion with Moses. What goes on? Moses sought the favor of the Lord, his God. O Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought out to kill them in the mountains and wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger. Relent and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by yourself, I will make descendants as numerous as the stars. And the promises of God. Verse 14, then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster you threatened. Now think about your anger. Think about my anger. Think about your wrath. Think about my wrath. If you're in that situation, how do you respond? You can be thankful for God's wrath. You can be comforted by God's wrath. It's a reasoned wrath. It's a reasonable wrath. It's a just wrath. It's a holy wrath. It's a righteous wrath. It's a turning wrath. And you know what it says? Somebody look up Psalm 106, verse 19. I'm just going to include you in this sermon here. Psalm 106, verse 19. Hold on one second. Yep. Uh, I'm just, my wife reminds me often, Chris, let us get to the passage. So that's what I wanted to do. Okay, so can you read that loud and clear, dear? At Horeb, yep. they made a cast in worship, an idol cast from metal. Keep going. They exchanged their glory for an image of a bull, which eats grass. They forgot that God could save them, who had done great things in Egypt. Miracles from the land of Ham, and Austin seized by the Red Sea. One more. Yep. So he said he would destroy them. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood at the breach before him to keep his wrath from destroying them. Keep his wrath from destroying them through pleading, through humility through reminding God who he is, through recognizing. And God responded to Moses' plea. And in Exodus 34, so you had Exodus 32 when they built the calf. Exodus 34, listen to what this, in, this tells us. Exodus 34 says, the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, chisel out two stones like the first ones. So God's taking them right back to where they were. Right back to the process of giving them the law. Because they stopped it by their rebellion. God keeps it going by his reconciliation and forgiveness. Verse 4, so Moses chiseled out two stones like the first one. Verse 5, then the Lord came down in a cloud and stood with him and proclaimed the name the Lord. 
And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. That's who our God is. Look at the next phrase. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. And you could be thankful, and I can be thankful that he doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. You would never know right from wrong. You would never know the holiness and the love and the righteousness and justice of God if he left the guilty unpunished. He doesn't leave the guilty unpunished, but he is a God of forgiveness and grace and mercy and kindness and love. And so the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Let me give you just some, we'll have to travel quickly through some of the Old Testament. And I didn't even make it to the New Testament to talk about some of the the illustrations and the picture of God's judgment and wrath. And I can go rather quickly. You can write down the references that you want. So you're going through and you go from Genesis, Exodus, and you come to Leviticus, the giving of the law, the setting up the priesthood. And we come to chapter 10. And you can hardly believe what's going to take place in chapter 10 of Leviticus. If you've read any of the scriptures... So in Leviticus chapter 10, it says this. It says, Aaron's sons, Nabdab and Abihu, took censers, put fire in them, and added incense, and they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So this is presumption. This is arrogance. This is audacity. This is basically saying, God, you might have your ways, but we have our ways. And we're going to do it the way we want to do it. And here's what it says. They offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. And we might be thinking, wow, that seems a little bit um, capricious, doesn't it? It seems a little bit like a flippant backhand. But turn to chapter 16. There's a little commentary. Chapter 16, Leviticus says this. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron who died when they approached the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in the front of the atonement cover on the ark or he will die because I appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. So God's saying, listen, flippancy, um, there was another word that I was looking for. Think of a word that has to do with being flippant, being, is there a word that starts with a C that has to do with uh, what's capricious? But I mean, yeah, that would be, that would be, I, I'm thinking of another word, cavalier, cavalier. Could you imagine wives? If your husband began in that he had respect for you for the first couple of years, and then he just began to be cavalier and we treat you any old way he felt like that particular day. So God is careful 
that people don't approach him with presumption and an idea of cavalier. You can be thankful that the God of Scripture is a God of anger, a God of wrath, in this type of anger and wrath, that it's measured, that it's reasonable, that it's precise, that it's governed by his love and his holiness and his justice. It leaves me in more awe and more reverence for this God of Scripture. More appreciation and more gratefulness. Numbers. So you go from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and you come to Numbers chapter 11, and you can't believe what it says. Numbers chapter 11. Now the people complained about their hardship in the hearing of the Lord. And when he heard them, his anger was aroused. So his anger swelled up. Right? Then fire from the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. And when the people cried out to Moses, he prayed to the Lord and the fire down, died down. So is that a warning shot over the trespassers? Is it a warning shot over the cavalier? Is it a warning shot over the presumptuous? Is it a warning shot over the grumblers and the complainers? Then it says in verse 4, the rabble with them began to crave other food. And you know the story. They wanted meat. So God said, you're going to have meat. And he gave them meat so that it came out their nostrils. And he gave them meat and meat and more meat. Nothing but meat. There was certainly manna. But the point was that they got what they wanted. And they still find a way to complain. In verse 33, but while the meat was still between their teeth and before it could be consumed, the anger of the Lord burned against the people and he struck them with a severe plague. He was teaching them, giving them opportunity to learn that he's no God to trifle with. Numbers chapter 12, and you can't believe what it says. Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife. Now Moses was a very humble man, verse 3, more humble than any other person on the face of the earth. <coughs> and God's anger burned, and he left them, and we left them. Miriam stood there, lepers. But it doesn't end that way, does it? Moses prays and God restores. Then you come to Numbers chapter 16 and you can hardly believe what happens. Korah and Dathan and Abiram rebel in their presumption. And again, there's an encounter with the living God. And God's teaching his people and he's showing patience with his people. And he's showing mercy with his people while he expresses his wrath to his people. You go forward now, and there's many other verses we could look at. Deuteronomy chapter 9. Deuteronomy chapter 9 says this. I'm reading from verse 7. Remember this and never forget how you provoked the Lord your God in anger in the desert from the day you left Egypt until you arrived here. You have been rebellious against the Lord. So was this God of wrath expressing his patience and his kindness and his mercy?
tenderheartedness every minute of every day while he walked with these people, I got start to get that picture, right? Remember this and never forget it, how you provoked the Lord your God to anger in the desert from the day you left Egypt until the day you arrived here. You have been rebellious against me. At Horeb, you aroused the Lord's wrath so that he was angry enough to destroy you. When I went up on the mountain to receive the tablets, I stayed on the mountain 40 days, 40 nights. I ate no bread. The Lord gave me two stones, which inscribed the finger of God. At the end of the 40 days and 40 nights, the Lord gave me two stone tablets. Then the Lord said, go down here at once because your people who you brought out of Egypt. The same story recapped, recapped in Psalms, recapped in Deuteronomy, showing the wrath of God, but also showing the grace and the mercy and the kindness and the righteousness, the holiness, the goodness of God. Verse 13, and the Lord said to me, I've seen this people. They are stiff-necked people. Let me alone so that I may destroy them and blot out their name from heaven and will make you into a nation stronger. So they're recounting again God's encounter. We have to go forward now to verse 19 of the same chapter, 919. I feared the anger and wrath of the Lord, for he was angry enough with you to destroy you. But he doesn't have the same kind of anger that a human does. Even in his anger, he's a God that you go toward if you're wise, if you're humble, if you're repentant, if you're aware at all of who you're dealing with, you move toward him, not away from him even in his anger. His wrath is a far cry from something uncontrolled or undirected behind a rage that people can, as opposed to the rage people can fly into. His wrath is specific and measured. His wrath accomplishes his purposes. God's wrath is expressed from his great patience and compassion. He withholds his anger. He holds back his wrath. He's in charge of its display. It is never haphazard. As a sinner, I take great comfort in that. I take great comfort in the fact that his wrath is measured. And I take great comfort in the fact that his wrath was poured out on his son, Jesus His wrath, though it be lethal, is tempered. Not one more pain than necessary and needful. And that's just something to ponder. What do you think of God? What do we think of God? Do we think of him as some capricious God in the sky waiting with a board standing over our heads to strike us? Doesn't give that picture in scripture it says a, a god of relentless patience and kindness and love dealing with a people who are unruly again and again i will try to kind of wrap this up but as you can see there's a lot of information you could cover you have all the story of as they went toward the promised land the interaction with Joshua, Judges, Samuel, the Kings, the Chronicles, all the interaction between God and his people. 
And then you come to the prophets. And just want to point out Lamentations. Okay, if you can find Jeremiah, Lamentations is at the tail end of Jeremiah. And the Lamentations is exactly what it is. It's a cry out. A lamentation is a cry out of somebody in great pain. And you, who do you think is in great pain when we come to lamentations after God had to judge his people, Jerusalem? Who's great pain here? Who's crying out for who? God's in great pain, crying out because of his rebellious people that he has had to judge. And he judged severely. And he sent them into captivity, destroyed the city. After a long, long suffering of giving them opportunity. So I pick up the story in Lamentations 2. And it says, without pity, verse 2, the Lord has swallowed up all the dwellings of Jacob. In his wrath, he has torn down the strongholds of the daughter of Jerusalem. So it goes on to talk about God's wrath and God's destruction. But it was a reasonable wrath. It was a just wrath. It was a holy wrath. It was a righteous wrath. It was from a God who's in relation with these people, trying to teach them who he is, trying to get them to respond. We can't read many of the verses here. Verse 11, my eyes fail from weeping. I am in torment within. My heart is poured out on the ground because my people are destroyed. Because children and infants faint in the streets. This is Jeremiah's writing, but it's God's heart. This is the same heart that cries out, O Jerusalem, by Jesus' words. I wish I could gather you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. Reading on in chapter 2, verse 17, The Lord has done what he has planned. He has fulfilled his word, which he decreed long ago. He has overthrown you without pity. He has left the enemy gloat over you. He has exalted the horn of your foes. Verse 14, The visions of your prophets were false and worthless. They did not expose your sin to ward off your captivity. If they had responded to God's correction, it would have warded off God's wrath and discipline. Listen, I have many more verses to cover, many more things to say, but I just want to wrap this up. God's wrath, again, this is my proposition, my my preposition my understanding of where I'm at and I stand to in and an understanding of scripture but God's wrath is governed by his patience as demonstrated again and again in scripture wrath originates from the very character of God from his holiness his justice his righteous it's a necessary unrelenting fiercely opposing reasonable resolve against all that is evil deceptive, harmful, and wrong. For his own name's sake and for your good and my good. How can we take refuge and how can we find comfort and how can there be any solace be found in a God whose wrath could flare up as a fire without 
patience, justice, mercy, love, kindness. And we can learn from Scripture, as fierce as God's wrath is, as irresistible as God's wrath is, it's not unpredictable in that sense. It's not random. It's not capricious. It's not without reason, nor is it unreasonable. It's perfectly in line with the character of His holiness and His righteousness, His goodness, His justice. In Psalm 38, David expresses his own personal experience about the convicting work of God's wrath on the heart of a humbled sinner. And we can read that again and again in Scripture, and we can read it again and again in the history of Christian people walking with their God in a humble way. God's wrath is found in His just response to human evil. God's wrath is not God losing His temper. It's God's reasonable response to evil. Evil that would bring damage and harm and brokenness to the people He loves and cares for. Last thought, the idea of God's wrath, the doctrine of God's wrath in the Old Testament, it uses over 20 different words to express the truth of it, and it's mentioned 580 times. And I think it culminates in Hebrews chapter 12. You'll have to read that. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your grace and your goodness, and we're thankful, God, for the clarity that Scripture gives. And we look around us, and we're in a bad situation down here, God, because we haven't trusted you. We're living in brokenness, and we're living in relationships that aren't as strong as they could be because we're not trusting you like we should be. Help us, God, clear up our cloudy thinking. Move us away from heresy and false teaching. Help us to understand the severity of your wrath because of the severity and the purity of your holiness and your justice and your mercy, and your love. And we're thankful for your grace every minute of every day that mercy triumphs over judgment. And we have a great high priest who has gone before us, who entered into the holy place, the most holy place, not with the blood of bulls and calves, but with his own blood. And he sprinkled it on the atonement seat. And he stands as our representative before a holy God. And we look to Jesus for our salvation. We look to his finished full and complete work on the cross. And we look to him as our resurrected king and our leader our Messiah, our Lord, our Savior. It's in his precious name we pray. Amen.
So we're offline, and so we have 